You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thank you for tuning in. We have a great podcast lined up for today, election security concerns, expectations, and how to get involved with Bryson Bort, Cynthia Kaiser, and Matthew Masterson. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Bryson, Cynthia, and Matt, and then dive into today's topic. Bryson, take a moment to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, so I'm a special advisor to uh, CISA. Um, I'm on the board of advisors for the Army Cyber Institute. I'm the co-founder of a nonprofit called the ICS Village, where we do education awareness on critical infrastructure. And then my uh, full-time job, I uh, founded a company called Scythe uh, that allows you to dial up any malware in the world for testing. Um, And I'm a senior fellow at the R Street and National Security Institutes in Cybersecurity and National Security. Hi, and thanks for having me. My name is Cynthia Kaiser. I'm a section chief with the FBI Cyber Division, and I've been one of the election leads for the division since 2017. I'm really glad to be talking to everyone today about the cyber side of election security and how real threats or disinformation are playing out into the current threat landscape. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Excited to do this podcast. Uh, My name is Matt Masterson. I'm the election security lead within the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency of DHS. Uh, In that role, I help lead our uh, coordinated efforts to support state and local election officials, the private sector, uh, managing risk to uh, election systems. Uh, Prior uh, to being in this role, I was a commissioner at the Election Assistance Commission uh, and served uh, in the Secretary of State of Ohio's office. So my background is election administration. Welcome, all of you, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today. I, too, am excited for this conversation. I know that we're only a couple of weeks out from the 2020 national election, but certainly when we talk about election security, there's more to the story than the presidential election. As is the case with any threat landscape, there are new and emerging threats to local, state, and national elections, which are ongoing. So today we want to talk about election security, not only in the context of our national presidential 2020 election, but through the wider lens of what to focus on after November. So let's start with hearing from each of you about what is the current risk environment. Cynthia, would you mind starting for us? Sure. Well, on the malign foreign influence side, we know Russia seeks to sow discord and ultimately undermine confidence in our democratic institutions and values. And the government of China certainly has an interest in influencing our political thought and our policies and wants to shift them in a friendlier pro-China direction. But I'm going to talk to you today more about the cyber side of election security. We're already seeing cyber incidents targeting election and campaign infrastructure. And honestly, that makes sense, given the attention that we're placing on monitoring any suspicious activity. What myself and a lot of colleagues across the U.S. government like to say is that we're trying to detect every tremor. So let me tease out what it means to detect every tremor. Our adversaries are continuously looking for vulnerable U.S. networks to exploit, and networks associated with political organizations, campaigns, and election infrastructure are no exception. But on elections, incidents that we may see as more routine are being closely tracked anyways, given the potential impact they could have. 
So the incidents we're tracking have really been part of larger adversary campaigns. So for example, a broad cyber criminal campaign targeting a lot of sectors at once. And good cyber hygiene, like patching known vulnerabilities and not clicking on unknown links and attachments, would prevent most of these incidents. So that's really where we're at in the um, current risk environment and looking at you know, the incidents that we've seen thus far. That's definitely comforting to hear that good cyber hygiene can really prevent a lot of these threats. Matt, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I appreciate it. And I think Cynthia did a, a really good job summarizing what we're seeing, uh, some of the threats. From, from my perspective uh, at CISA, we're out working with uh, literally thousands of local election offices, uh, all 50 states. Uh, and what we continue to harp on uh, as we look at the risk is, is managing uh, the risk to your outward facing uh, systems. So uh, managing risk to the websites, to voter lookup tools, uh, to information portals that uh, voters or others may use uh, to understand the process. Because uh, we recognize that uh, in many cases, uh, county uh, offices in particular are uh, under-resourced, understaffed from an IT perspective uh, and continue to have challenges uh, doing some of the things that Cynthia mentioned. So patching of systems, upgrading systems, multi-factor authentication, network segmentation, uh, all go a really long way. Uh, to help managing much of the, the risk environment that we see. Uh, but also we recognize uh, the interplay between uh, risk to the election infrastructure and the ability to undermine confidence uh, in the process. The reality that a defaced website, uh, county website, while not impactful on the integrity of your vote, uh, having no impact on even a person's ability to vote, uh, could uh, be used to undermine confidence uh, in, uh, in a messaging campaign. And so really engaging uh, those election officials that we work with, the private sector, to not just take those steps uh, to build some resilience in the process, but then to turn around and talk to voters about the steps they've taken, about uh, what would happen if an in incident occurs, how they would maintain the integrity of the election uh, so that folks can uh, feel that they're uh, safe and secure in voting uh, and that their vote will be counted as cast. So uh, looking at the hybrid uh, threat, understanding uh, the risk uh, to the outward facing infrastructure in particular uh, and working to manage that. Great. Bryson, anything from you? Sure. So I, I represent the, the shadowy hacker side of these things. And I think the first thing to understand to, to reinforce what Matt and Cynthia have said is the technical risks are the, the vulnerability that our adversaries, and we, we know the, the big three, and mostly China and Russia, who are trying to influence this because we are the number one economy on the planet. And there are a lot of people who have an interest in which way that might go because of the impact that we have on world politics. It's not that I, as the adversary, have to technically hack anything. All I have to do is undermine the electorate's confidence that the system is transparent and successful. So if I can give and tarnish that feeling about the integrity of it, then I've accomplished my goals. And so there's, there's a lot of disinformation more, I think, that we've seen since 2016 than there is um, the, the actual concern of that technical risk because organizations like Matt's with CISA and Cynthia's with FBI, along with a number of other federal, state, and local agencies have all been working hand in hand for a couple of years now to really shore those up. Now we still have a way to go. And even after this election, there's still going to be work to continue because an election is just a milestone along a contiguous line of all of these folks working. 
But what I see at this point, here we are at doing this recording in mid-October, election day is two weeks away, but the election has already begun. People are already mailing in ballots. Absentee voting has already begun. And so I think at this point, the die to some degree is pretty much cast for what that means through election day. And the real risk at this point is going to be with the pandemic having shifted us to so much more of mail-in ballots and a different kind of voting than we've done in the past is we're not gonna likely have a result on election night. We're gonna all be staying up and everybody's gonna be watching the totals and we're probably not gonna be able to call it then. The question is, how long will it take for us to safely be able to call the election? Is that going to be a day? Is that gonna be a week? Is that gonna be a couple of weeks? That spacing because of how much more manual work needs to be done to me is the risk for the adversaries to try to take advantage of as an opportunity, which is changing the narrative of, hey, the reason that you haven't seen this yet is because of insert scurrilous claim. And so the risk is going to continue through election day in a different way than we've seen in the past. Right, and that risk is only further compounded by the continued disinformation and you know attempts at undermining the trust in the election system. And it, it seems like that's an uphill battle. So what I'd like to know is based on those risks, what are some of the immediate short-term and long-term concerns and even approaches to addressing those concerns? Matt, let's start with you this time. Yeah, I appreciate this question. It's, it's in some ways super hard for me uh, to look past the immediate uh, of the election in front of me, but it's important to do so. So I, I appreciate this. Short term, uh, right now, as Bryson, uh, I think, very correctly laid out, uh, the the systems uh, that are going to be used to run this election are largely locked in. Uh, the voting systems are programmed in use. We have over 20 million uh, votes cast as of today. Uh, and so much of what can be done short term uh, is around pushing timely and actionable information out to the field, uh, whether that's technical indicators, threat information, whatever the case may be, uh, to continue to help uh, the, the election officials, uh, the private sector manage risk to the systems. Uh, election officials are natural risk managers. They spend a lot of time asking what could go wrong. Uh, and so really having them check in with their incident response planning, making sure everything's in place, uh, that they're prepared for for small, medium, or large uh, incidents or challenges on election day, uh, and that they know who to report to if they have a problem. There's more support from the federal government, from the private sector towards election officials right now than ever before, uh, but really having that plan in place that they know who to turn to, how to report it, and get the help they need is really critical. Uh, and then the third part in the immediate is that ongoing messaging around the resilience of the process to the American people. As Bryson said, this this ongoing going drumbeat, uh, Cynthia talked about uh, the, the Russian goal of undermining uh, confidence in our process. We need to continue to message the American people uh, to be prepared, uh, to have a, a plan and patient with the process, that there's resilience in the system. It's not always pretty, uh, but, but they are safe and secure in going to vote and that their vote will be counted as cast. Longer term, uh, we really need to look at uh, our investment, and I don't just mean money, that's so often the part of the conversation, uh, but our investment in, in uh, election infrastructure in, in election systems. Uh, many of these counties in particular, we have over 8,800 jurisdictions in the United States uh, that run elections. Many of them don't have the necessary IT support uh, expertise available to them uh, to manage risk to their systems in an environment where we know nation states 
uh, are interested in, in, in their systems, right? And so how do we, uh, you know, instead of dumping money or dumping support at one time around a presidential, how do we recognize that they run two, three, four, five or more elections a year and that this needs to be an ongoing investment of time, money and resources from all levels uh, of government to support them uh, so that they can manage the risks in the way that they know they need to and that the, in the way that they're trying. And then that ongoing conversation with the American people, continue to engage Americans about how to recognize disinformation, misinformation, and how to respond, to think before they link, to, to read behind, beyond the headline, and to turn to trusted sources of information for elections that state and local election officials uh, to get the information they need to be able to vote instead of relying on you know, everything from social media to online journals to possibly fake websites. So I, I addressed um, the short-term risk of the fact that we're already in the election. This is going to go through election day, and then it's that post period. Our our panel, um, which hopefully will be at RSA um, next year, will go even more on this because at that point we'll be able to do an autopsy of what happened and what are those lessons learned, just like we've been doing at each of the critical milestones in 2016 and 2018, where I think there was a, a good performance um, the longer term risk, I'm going to kind of come at this with a, a different curveball. Disinformation is not just a problem of foreign adversaries trying to inject either a slant or confusion. It's also a domestic problem. We, we, have, we see these challenges where different groups, I'll, I'll throw QAnon out there, um, have, have come up and have built strong followings that I think we can all safely say are not necessarily factually based. And so what I think the longer term risk here is that we continue to have these undercurrents driven by social media, which are overall deleterious to our society and the democracy with its principles based on a fair, transparent and vibrant, constructive debate, which I think that's, that's been taken away from us. And so this is something I think it's independent of elections themselves, but clearly have become a problem. And so I think we as a society, as a people, as a country, need to reevaluate what role social media is allowed to have, um, because I think it's been given an outsized influence that not only negatively affects things like elections, what makes it challenging to have those discussions? And then, of course, what are the impacts of this kind of thing psychologically on different age groups, all the way from issues that kids are having in schools to adults trying to go to the ballots? Now, the American people pay me to worry, so I could give a really long answer to this question. Um, but Bryson and Matt really uh, hit home, I think, the idea of disinformation and the concerns we have. And so, you know, thinking about the immediate short-term and long-term concerns, my answer is really the same. It is that worry about the real or claimed incidents undermining the public's confidence in their ability to vote, their faith in the result, or kind of long-term, their faith in the entire electoral process. Uh, so one of the elements of this is we've, over the past few weeks, FBI and CISA have published a series of public service announcements to equip Americans with information they need to counter what I think Bryson said really well as attempts to tarnish their faith in the election processes. And there's a few points on that. You know, one is acknowledging we could very well see cyber incidents 
that render voter registration or election night reporting temporarily inaccessible to election officials. And you know, we need to make sure that Americans understand that that could slow but would not prevent voting or the reporting of results. And then there's kind of the outright lies, adversaries spreading disinformation, suggesting that these successful cyber operations have compromised election infrastructure and facilitated the, you know, hacking and leaking of voter registration data. So really getting out there and talking about the redundancy that state and local officials have built into the system to mitigate a lot of impacts of any cyber incident. And also being transparent with the American public that FBI and CISA haven't seen cyber activity against election infrastructure that's really compromised the accuracy of voter registration information or prevented a registered voter from casting a ballot or compromised the integrity of any ballots cast. With all that said, uh, the public should know that we're working tirelessly against election threats, but also that they should continue to seek out reliable and verified information from trustworthy sources like state and local election officials if they have any questions. Because being able to mitigate all of those concerns about um, you know, how these claims may be affecting people's willingness or ability to vote is really going to take a whole of society effort. And I think you really hit the nail on the head there with the trusted and reliable sources, like the public service announcement that CISA and the FBI put out, I think it was just last week or the week before was fantastic. And those kinds of messages are so instrumental into in, in informing the public um, through reliable sources. And those are great examples of who you can trust. In what ways have the cyber missions of both CISA and the FBI grown and changed since the 2016 election? Well, I don't have to tell anyone listening that cyber threats against the U.S. are constantly evolving. I'm really excited, I think, about some of the changes FBI cyber has made in response to how those threats are evolving so that uh, really recognizing our strategy needed to change along with them. So the FBI's new cyber strategy not only focuses on how we're going to confront the unique challenges faced in cyberspace, but also why we're doing it in the first place. And that why is really so the American people can have safety, security, and confidence in our connected world. So let me unpack that a little bit for everyone. Um, to us, safety is knowing that uh, criminal and nation state actors are being held to account for targeting or compromising victims in the U.S., whether that's citizens or large corporations. Accountability can come in a lot of forms to us, uh, ranging from indictments to red notices to sanctions, diplomatic pressure, or cyber operations. Security is receiving actionable alerts about system and network vulnerabilities, derived from the intelligence that only um, uh, the FBI and uh, its partners can provide. And it means notifying targeted entities before they experience a breach and providing them with the tools and information necessary to defend themselves. Part of that's a commitment to share as much as possible, as quickly as possible, so the public's alerted and prepared. And finally, confidence is knowing that the federal government's going to combat these threats with a fierce urgency, and that if you are a victim, you will receive the attention you deserve. And for the public to know that we're working around the clock and with the rest of the government and industry to try to really break down walls uh, and not have any silos so that we can really attack the cyber threat as a united front. I can't think of a better example of our new strategy in action than election security. Um, I think even just on information sharing and partnerships alone, I know Matt's probably sick of hearing from me. 
I was going to jump in. Uh, absolutely not sick of hearing from Cynthia. And I, I will say, from CISA's perspective, uh, the way that election our election mission space has helped shape uh, activity uh, and changes within CISA has been uh, really awesome to watch. And, and a big part of that is the level of uh, collaboration, the level of work that the federal government across the board is doing on uh, the election space. Uh, it has taken uh, all of us, uh, certainly Cynthia, uh, and team over at the FBI, our IC partners, uh, CISA and the private sector all working together in order to support the election community in the way that they both need uh, but expect. Uh, for us, uh, elections uh, really challenged uh, our identity and who we were starting back in 2016, but 2017, uh, when elections were declared part of critical infrastructure. And states basically told us uh, to pound sand, uh, that they didn't want or need our help, uh, that we didn't understand their systems or mission well enough, uh, and that uh, we really needed to uh, show what our value was before they were willing to engage. Uh, it, it even uh, got to the point where states were accusing us of trying to, to hack them because of the lack of trust, right? Uh, and so for us at, at CISA, that really forced us to look in the mirror and say, okay, how do we engage this mission space? How do we serve uh, this community uh, in a way that uh, builds trust? Uh, and is meaningful. And, and what it came down to, providing value, that, that just declaring something critical infrastructure, that having conversations with them about what that could mean wasn't going to be enough, uh, that we had to provide them support, services, information, intelligence that allowed them to manage risk to their systems, to understand what the, the threats and risks were, uh, and respond rapidly. And, and so for us, I think that the biggest changes have come about how we approach uh, engaging uh, the community, how we approach providing that value, changing, literally changing the services we offer, uh, developing things like remote penetration testing, specifically uh, at the request of uh, state and local election officials who said, look, uh, we can't have four of your people on site for two weeks. Can you find a better way? Uh, to help us out. The amount of information sharing and collaboration at the federal level being pushed out to state and locals has uh, increased exponentially since 2016. And really, I think the biggest area of improvement from 2018 to 2020 has been the way that we're all working at the federal level to support the state and locals. And it's because they demanded that of us. Uh, they would not accept a repeat uh, of 2016, 2017 in the way that we engage. So I, I think uh, that the election mission has caused us to reevaluate even just our approach, uh, has shaped uh, how we're serving other critical infrastructure sectors. A really good example is uh, how we've responded and helped support uh, the community around COVID uh, and the vaccine uh, and Operation Warp Speed. Uh, a lot of the lessons learned from elections are now being applied in sections like that uh, at CISA. Uh, to really serve these communities in a way that provides immediate value and recognizes uh, the speed at which they have to operate. I think it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the, the sort of pushback that CISA got from local and state election agencies. And I would love to maybe just expand on that last question a little bit um, and hear about what work has been done to mitigate the risks. Matt, you talked about critical infrastructure and the ways in which you know, you, you all as an organization had to really look in the mirror and figure out who you are. But if you could speak a little more specifically about what has been done um, in mitigating risks, uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, a lot of work's gone in and, and the vast majority of credit honestly goes to the state and local officials, uh, the private sector that supports them, that have taken the information, taken the uh, the reports and, and whatever else we can push out uh, and and 
taken action on it, right? So for us, uh, it started with getting a baseline understanding of, of, of the risks, of the systems, of how they uh, operate together and how to manage that. And so uh, we spent a great deal of time, 2017, 2018, really digging into understanding election infrastructure uh, and how the systems work. That gave us the ability to begin to tailor our services, things like remote penetration testing, uh, on-site risk and vulnerability assessments, cyber hygiene scans, architecture reviews, uh, to tailor it to the community, understanding better the systems that they use, how they interact with the private sector, and then gave us insight into how they're managing uh, those systems by performing those services. So, uh, you know, it's not just benevolence on the part of uh, CISA and offering these services. The amount of insight we get partnering with the state and locals as we do this testing is immense. And one of the biggest areas of growth uh, is we've deployed uh, intrusion detection sensors, uh, Albert sensors across all 50 states, uh, hundreds of local jurisdictions. And so even just understanding uh, the types of traffic targeting election infrastructure, what it looks like, really helped us baseline, okay, does it go up? Does it go down in and around elections? What would be out of the normal? Uh, how do we look at that? Uh, and that level of insight just didn't exist in 2016, right? Uh, and so it really helped us understand not just the systems themselves, but the actual traffic and, and malicious activity in and around election systems. And we've built that out. We're, we're now piloting uh, endpoint detection systems through the ISAC. The amount of reporting we're getting from state and locals now that we have that trusted relationship uh, is really, really strong. Uh, and we have as much insight into this area of critical infrastructure as any uh, that we work with. And so now it, it translates into uh, what steps can they take? And so we've uh, issued numerous risk assessments uh, and numerous reports around what we're seeing out in the field. And honestly, none of it's terribly surprising. It's the kind of common vulnerabilities uh, that you would expect to see. Unpatched or unsupported systems, we continue to see uh, challenge the election field. Uh, in counties in particular, flat networks where you can get in one part uh, and lateral around to other parts of the network continues to be a challenge, particularly at the county level. Uh, we've seen a, a drastic increase in multi-factor authentication on election systems, but continue to push that. Even just simple things like time to patch, uh, we've seen that cut in half since 2017, but it's still longer than we'd like to see. So continuing to push these base level practices, these steps really helps to mitigate the vast majority of activity so that we can really hone in on uh, any activity that's unique uh, or, or beyond uh, those typical vulnerabilities. And then awareness uh, around phishing. Uh, we know it remains the most common uh, way to gain access to systems. I've heard Bryson say uh, it's usually where he would start as well. Uh, and so working on the human factor, helping election officials recognize where uh, those challenges remain, uh, putting in place good access controls, credential management, multi-factor authentication really helps mitigate a bunch of this risk uh, as we look at the election environment. Yeah, so Matt had mentioned earlier about the, the concept of cyber hygiene, and this is where the general election security infrastructure, where we're not even talking about the voting machines in that process or the um, you know polling or the ballot, uh, the books, uh, the polling books, is that uh, it's, you know, what, there are over 8,000 jurisdictions in the United States, and these are all the way down at local levels, and it's generally an older population that's running those, and they are using whatever computer they're using to do work, just like everybody else throughout the world is doing work. And phishing is, of course, the primary access method to, to get to them. Um, and I love phishing because it's so easy to do. From a cost perspective, it does not cost me a lot to create a widespread continuous phishing campaign. 
Um, it's not hard, particularly to work with um, a more, I, I mean, a generally uneducated um, or misinformed user, uh, particularly with election security. There are so, there's so much attention and there's so much fear and uncertainty and doubt to take advantage of. So that's, that's like the, that common problem across the risk. And so um, the, the, the thing that I, I think is amazing is first giving credit to the agencies and all of the government levels. Um, we have come a long way in four years. Um, I think Matt joked, and maybe it wasn't a joke because I think you were actually accused of hacking like the state or local level. We, um, we were for sure. Yeah, we were for sure. And that, that gives you an idea of where everybody was, um, that level of distrust even between the agencies. And one, you know, one advantage to having a, an external threat is it, it tends to help you understand who your allies are and they've been working together. Uh, when we held that first public joint agency panel on election security at DEF CON, we had CISA, we had FBI, we had the Election Assistance Commission, we had Cyber Command, uh, we had NSA, um, and I feel like I'm even still missing somebody. But the point was, what was so cool about that panel is the fact that all of you already knew each other. Your working relationships from what you had been doing over the prior years were strong enough that there was really no prep that was needed for the panel, literally just y'all showing up and talking about what you were already doing, which I think is the strongest proof of how the interagency and combined holistic government response is working to mitigate these risks because there's the proof that, that that's happened. Going to the private sector, um, I'd like to give a shout out to the work of um, from the University of Chicago where they have been uh, working to get IT professionals around the country married up to local jurisdictions to just do general IT support because uh, that's kind of the thing that everybody always says. Well, like, hey, you know, I'm listening to this podcast this sounds interesting and I love that these people are doing this on my behalf. How do I get involved? And so you're a part of that solution. I mean, everybody that's listening to this most likely is an IT professional and there is absolutely the ability for you to go and help out your local jurisdiction with some really basic things that would make their lives a lot easier. Uh, the other one I'll throw out there is the Voting Village. So the Voting Village is an informal organization uh, that is, um, you know, its biggest event is of course at DEF CON. Um, and they're there raising education and awareness. And in some cases providing some hands-on technical demonstrations for folks to understand different aspects around election security. So that's what we've seen. Bryson and Matt said it really well. Uh, you know, what we've been talking about is we treat elections like a team sport. Um, so, you know, working with everyone we can, uh, so government partners, election officials, campaigns, political committees, social media companies, and the American people, uh, to be able to safeguard our voting processes and protect our election infrastructure. Uh, I want to emphasize that uh, in this space, you know, we're not going to tolerate adversaries' criminal activity that threatens to disrupt the physical and virtual access Americans rely upon to vote. And that means that our threshold for responding to actual election incidents is incredibly low. And when we respond, it's quick, and we're working first to make sure we understand what happened on the system so that we can warn others and try to stop or identify additional uh, attempts, and um, also try to identify who uh, is behind some of that activity so that 
we can turn it around and work with our partners again on imposing risks and consequences on those adversaries who we're, really, who we're seeking to interfere in our elections. Uh, so we really are, I think, focused in a uh, dedicated way uh, towards uh, all of the election threats or risks that come our way so that we can ensure that uh, everything that uh, we're doing in this space uh, lifts up election security across the U.S. So given all of that and all of the work that has been done, what should we expect on Election Day and beyond, which we know is really the important piece for this conversation? I'll repeat what was said earlier about uh, the potential delays that we may experience um, between uh, Election Day and knowing the results of the election. Uh, state and local officials typically require several days to weeks to certify elections final results um, in order to ensure that every legally cast vote is accurately counted. And the increased use of mail-in ballots from COVID-19 protocols uh, could leave officials with incomplete results on election nights. And so I think what we really uh, need to expect is that we have to be patient, but that we also have to prepare for foreign disinformation. Uh, so foreign actors and cyber criminals could exploit any delays to try to discredit the electoral process and undermine confidence in U.S. democratic institutions, much like we've been talking about uh, uh, earlier. And, you know, and that includes spreading lies about voter suppression or cyber attacks, targeting election infrastructure, voter ballot fraud, and any other problems intended to convince the public of elections uh, illegitimacy. And it, that may not look like... Uh, just sharing uh, social media content. Adversaries could do that by trying to create new websites or change existing ones, um, as well as that kind of creating or even amplifying corresponding social media content. And so uh, really we also, in addition to being patient and preparing, I think we need to expect to be on guard and critically evaluate the sources of information that we're all consuming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think Cynthia is spot on. As we look at uh, what to expect uh, here, as we sit here a couple weeks out, one is uh, for, for most Americans, the voting experience itself actually isn't going to be uh, that much different. Uh, most of the states were already offering uh, absentee ballot options, in-person early voting options, and obviously all 50 states offer an opportunity to vote in person on Election Day, even those vote by mail states. Uh, have that opportunity available. Uh, for some states, it has changed. Uh, in order to respond to COVID, uh, states have offered expanded absentee, uh, larger voting centers. We're seeing the use of stadiums or arenas uh, or drive-through uh, voting as well. So uh, for voters, understanding if you haven't voted already, and again, uh, we're almost to 30 million folks uh, that, that have uh, already voted uh Understanding your options, understanding how you're going to interact with the process, understanding what's on your ballot, your registration status, all of that builds resilience to any attempts to undermine confidence in that part of it. And then what's it look like Election Day and beyond? Uh, uh, election night may be a little bit different in some states uh, that have offered expanded uh, mail-in or absentee voting where they can't process item, uh, vote by mail ballots right away. States like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan uh, where they can only begin processing on Election Day. That means more outstanding votes uh, on election night than is typical. But 
they'll still have results on election night. We'll still have results coming in. Uh, the majority of states, there isn't that much of a change for them process-wise. Uh, we just may not know, as Bryson touched on earlier, uh, with certainty. And for election officials, that's true in every election. Election night's unofficial results, you know, uh, the pundits and, and news uh, have a role and job to play in that and certainly respect that. But for election officials, they're not done with an election until they certify the results. And that could be anywhere between a week, 10 days, two weeks or longer, uh, depending on their certification deadline, because for them, accuracy is far more important than speed. So having patience, understanding that they're following the process they follow for every election, that something isn't wrong. This is how they ensure accuracy over speed uh, is really critical. And being resilient to those attempts uh, that Cynthia mentioned to undermine uh, confidence, to turn to those state and local election officials as the trusted sources and to recognize uh, that there is a process in place to ensure the integrity of the process, the accuracy of the process uh, as they work to certify uh, the results is, is really critical. Uh, the last line of defense, uh, the last line of resilience in the elections process is a prepared and patient voter. Following up on that, you know, there's a call to sort of get people involved, making themselves more aware, but how can the tech community and citizens get involved in order to strengthen election security and help reduce risk? I know that we had talked about, you know, really evaluating your sources of information and, you know, looking for those trusted and reliable sources. What else can, can tech come, the tech community and citizens be doing? Bryson, why don't we start with you? Sure. So I'll, I'll focus this on what I think the audience is. Um, Cynthia and Matt will talk a lot more about the becoming an informed voter, uh, hammering that point home. Um, again, uh, antiquated infrastructure, um, folks who need resources and need help. So volunteer with your local jurisdiction, bring the, those IT skills, you know, Someone has to tell people to turn computers off and on again to fix them. Um, but no, seriously, I mean, they need help with patching. They need help with infrastructure setup and networking. Um, and uh, that's that's something that this community is, is perfect for. Um, get involved with the voting village. The voting village is out there um, advocating across multiple, uh, multiple issues. It'll help you stay current on what's going on there. Um, I, I think that we, we've seen this um, time and time again over the last three decades uh, in multiple industries and sectors where hackers are a part of the solution. Um, hackers are the independent research community who are there to help find things for to help make everything better. Um, and so this is where I, I, I'd like to see the, um, the, voting, the voting machine vendors um, open up more on that and embracing more of that, just like every other company has eventually come around to for the most part. Um, and then the final part, which is a bit more pedestrian, but right into the process, volunteer and be a poll worker at your local jurisdiction. Help be a part of the day of helping you know, process votes and voters and see for yourself what it's like. First, please report potential crimes, you know, such as cyber targeting of voting systems to the FBI. Um, you know, in fact, a lot of the information we've been able to provide network defenders on election systems is because other network defenders or the tech community saw something suspicious, contacted the FBI, and when we looked into it, uh, we said, you know what, we need to warn others. And so those 
reports uh, telling us about suspicious activity is so key to the work that I talked about before, uh, being a team sport, working together, uh, and uh, making sure that we're focused on the security of our election systems uh, overall. And then second, I know it sounds simple and we've said it before, but I'd urge anyone in charge of network security to focus on cyber hygiene. So patch those known vulnerabilities, enable two-factor authentication, build up the uh, other parts of uh, your network that you can to make sure that you keep adversary activity out. And then finally, um, to citizens, uh, stay alert. So ask yourself when you see something, can I trust this information? So seek out election information from trustworthy sources verify who produced the content, and consider their intent. So I'm going to like, kind of hone in on some of that election information that people might be seeking out. Uh, we're going to be looking for you know, information on how to register to vote if your state's still registering, or your polling location, or how to vote by mail, what does the provisional ballot process look like, and even those final election results. All that information, uh, the, um, you seek that out from trustworthy sources, uh, relying on state and local government election officials. We've seen adversaries in past election cycles and, and current ones try to put out disinformation on uh, where uh, individuals may seek to uh, need to go to vote uh, or days that uh, individuals should be voting on. And uh, citizens need to make sure that they're being focused on seeking out information from trustworthy sources and uh, not believing everything that they uh, may read. And then finally, verifying through multiple reliable sources any reports about compromises of voter information or voting systems, election night reporting, and the like. And consider searching for other reliable sources before sharing such information via social media or other avenues. Yeah, and I, I just have uh, one small thing. Bryson and, and Cynthia have covered it perfectly, but I want to hit on something that Bryson uh, touched on a little bit. And this is longer term. This isn't the immediate uh, election, but there's a growing relationship between uh, the, the cybersecurity uh, research community and the election community, particularly uh, with some election officials. States like Iowa and Ohio have announced coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs. A couple of the uh, voting system vendors ha have as well, uh, helping to, to build that relationship uh, by engaging in a trusted way, uh, showing uh, value uh, in, in the expertise. This is an expertise that election officials know they need and benefit from, uh, but there's a trust deficit there uh, that we need to continue to build because uh, we all benefit uh, from that engagement and work. Uh, and so uh, the more we can have uh, those positive engagements that I see almost every day, uh, from the private sector and, and researchers reporting vulnerabilities, working through coordinated, uh, responsible uh, paths versus just releasing public reports out of nowhere without ever talking to a state or local official or someone that understands the system. Uh, engage, talk to them. I, I've seen uh, great work done uh, by the community uh, doing this, and, and I've seen us move really from uh, no relationship at all uh, and a, a hostile relationship in many ways uh, to there being an opening up uh, in, in the election community wanting this engagement. And so if we can continue to build that out, uh, I really believe we'll make incredible strides on the overall risk posture around these systems. I, I love the optimism in that. And I think those are great parting words for our listeners, Matt. Um, to the three of you, Matt, Cynthia and Bryson, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. 
Listeners, thank you for joining us. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year round. Also subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app and stay tuned for our next podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us today.